everyone to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm Lori LeBay, the host and founder of Alzheimer Speaks. I am thrilled that you are joining us today because we are going to have a fabulous show talking about uh, brain rules for aging well. But before we get to our interview, we are always getting new listeners. So I always like to tell people just a little bit about Alzheimer Speaks and how we got started. Bottom line, it had to do uh, with the fact that my mom uh, lived on this journey with dementia for 30 years, and it changed my life and it changed my career. And I am just so thankful um, for her disease because it was such a such a true gift to me. And so Alzheimer Speaks is really an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. We are also known as a media platform because we have not only the radio show, but I do video interviews um, called Dementia Chats with the true experts, those people living with the disease. We have a blog, a resource directory, YouTube channels, and I do a lot of keynotes and um, speaking and consulting as well. So our whole goal here really is to join forces and share knowledge and really have a true everyday conversation, like you're just sitting around the table with friends, uh, having a cocktail or having a cup of coffee, whatever your, your choice of uh, drink is, and just being comfortable with having authentic conversations to improve our care culture. At our core, we also believe really strongly in collaboration, and we think that that is the only way we are going to win this battle. Uh, most everybody you talk to has been touched by somebody in their life having this disease. And so uh, I want to thank you for your likes and your clicks and your shares on all of our mediums from Facebook to Twitter to LinkedIn to the website, the blog, the radio show. You see, every time you push us out to your sphere, you are pushing knowledge out to people in need. And there are a lot of people in your own sphere that you probably don't know that are struggling with dementia or giving care to somebody who is diagnosed. And the more information we push out, the more normal it seems, the easier it's going to be for people to reach out and grab that information when the time is right for you. And I know that our collaborative efforts are working because we were honored to be named the number one influencer online regarding Alzheimer's, according to Sharecare and Dr. Oz. Maria Shriver has uh, named us an architect of change for humanity. And just recently, we were recognized by Oprah as a health hero for 2018. And I say those things not to pat myself on the back because I truly believe all of us need to take part in those accolades because we couldn't have done it alone. It, it is a true collaboration in terms of sharing knowledge. So thank you so much. I'd also like, you, like to invite you to be a guest on the show because we... We are interested in hearing everyone's voice. So if you are diagnosed with dementia, any form, 
if you are caring for somebody with dementia, if you are a business that has a service, a product, a tool, maybe you're an author, maybe you're a musician. We just had uh, Jonathan Brooke on who is doing a one-woman musical play that's absolutely fantastic called My Mother Has Four Noses. We have had Harvard Research on the show. We've had advocates on the show. We do open forums sometimes just so people can call in and ask their questions. Again, we are a community. This is not a disease of one. This truly affects all of us, our businesses, from our grocery stores to our gas stations, to our theaters and our salons. Everybody needs to get on board and understand and be respectful of this disease so that we can truly, truly move forward. Now, I want to give a shout out to some of our friends of Alzheimer's Speaks because they're doing fabulous work. Um, Maria Shriver, for instance, it has WAM, which is, which is Women Against Alzheimer's. She also does the Move for Minds event, which will be coming out this summer. We have the Care to Plan um, Resource Directory for Dementia, which is brand new. It's in beta testing, and you can go to alzheimerspeaks.com and go to the Resource Directory for more information. There's a really cool initiative called the Purple Table Reservations, where people can call ahead and um, let them know that somebody in their party has dementia and they will um, make sure that they are seated in a quieter area. They will make sure their staff is trained in terms of making it very comfortable for them. Um, who else do I want to yell out to? Of course, the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation, which is a lot of holistic um, things. So, you know, if you're into exercise and meditation and eating right, they really are the go-to place. Uh, again, the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation. The American Senior Magazine is also really cool. Uh, they have large print, they have great articles and photography, as well as um, some great games um, in their magazine. And then last I want to do a shout out to is the Call Alert Center. And this is absolutely fantastic for people uh, with dementia and their care partners to be able to register somebody um, in case they would wander. And they have one specific for caregivers, but they also, you can register your grandchildren or your kids, if you have college students, if you travel, and even your pets. Um, and they do uh, kind of a, a social uh, blitz on that, and it's absolutely fantastic and very inexpensive. And you can get a discount if you just go to alzheimerspeaks.com. It's under $15 a year. There is also one other thing that I want to mention, and that is the deadline is March 2nd for the Neurofilm Festival. So you can still submit your video for the film festival, and there's a grand prize of $1,000. They have like four different categories. And again, just go to Alzheimer's Speaks and go to our blog and you'll be able to find more information. Finally going to get to our guest today. I'm done talking for a little while. We're going to talk with Dr. John Medina, who is a developmental molecular biologist. He has had a lifelong fascination with how the mind reacts to and organizes information. He is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Brain Rules, which is a provocative book that takes on the way our schools and work environments are designed. In his new book, which we're going to be talking about today, 
Brain Rules for Aging Well. Dr. Medina shares scientific facts in a storytelling fashion, which I think you're going to be really surprised with. He will also tell us his prescription to age well. Dr. Medina is an affiliate professor of bioengineering at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Please welcome Dr. Medina. You can call me John, Lori. That'd be just great. No, um, John, I always start out asking all of my guests this, and that is, have you been personally touched by dementia with family or friends at all? Not personally, not in my immediate uh, uh, circle. In fact, most of uh, most of my research career has been spent as a private consultant, primarily to biotech and pharmaceutical industries. And I've worked on a number of Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's-related projects. To me, one of the most interesting aspects of Alzheimer's is at the level of cell and gene, particularly because there is such strong evidence that the disease actually begins much earlier than the symptoms present themselves. It turns out to be a developmental question that's very much in the wheelhouse of things that I have uh, considered as research projects a great deal of my career. So I've been touched by it only in the general sense of being fascinated with it as a developmental question and uh, have been fascinated with that for literally decades. Oh, wow. Now, it's, it, it is interesting because the... Um the curve regarding dementia and the different types of dementia and, and the terms even used seem to change. And so one of the yeah. things that is talked about now, you know, they're really uh, diagnosing people with mild cognitive impairment sure. and that can kind of be a precursor uh, to the onset of Alzheimer's. Um, can you tell our audience what is the difference? Because, um, you know, they've, they've heard so many times from people that I've interviewed that were diagnosed with Alzheimer's and then they were supposedly, they, you know, they joke, I was downgraded to MCI, but I can tell you my <laughs> symptoms are the same and there's nothing mild about this. <laughs> so how would, how, would you define, uh, how would you define mild cognitive impairment? Well, it is a tough call trying to differentiate MCI from more severe forms of, of psychopathologies like um, like Alzheimer's. Uh, I think the best definition, Laurie, is actually not too far from you at all. The Mayo Clinic gives it. The Mayo Clinic, uh, Rochester folks, say uh, the best thing you can do is to watch for changes in memory and emotions that are dramatic. You don't just lose your keys, you begin to lose your train of thought, for example, or emotions become increasingly inappropriate, you become more impetuous, more reckless, more reckless, uh, uh, you have a loss of what we call executive function. Mayo's best advice is this. They say very f uh, flatly on their website, your friends and loved ones begin to notice something is wrong. And when that begins to be a, a problem and that level increases, you probably have something that isn't so much MCI, but it's something that is turning into something uh, that is probably more severe. The Mayo Clinic literally suggests that these types of dementias are never uh, uh, experienced as an isolated event. They're almost always in a community. And the community can play a great role in helping the person understand exactly what they have and when they need to go in for further testing. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I actually think that, you know, if you can rely, if, if the people that are surrounding, if they begin to know, and the way I'll usually say it in the lecture is, you just know with your knower. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you yeah. just have this intuition. You've known this person for a long time. You've loved this person for a long time. And you are noticing some changes. 
then it's time to uh, uh, to start getting a more formal evaluations to see if MCI is turning into something uh, that needs uh, requires more attention. Yeah, I think one of the problems we have is that we don't have a lot of true authentic conversations on a serious basis. Yeah, and, yeah. and so many people don't trust, um, which, you know, pushes up, in my opinion, that that whole denial button in, sure. in terms of, of how we're doing that, or, you know, you're just controlling me, or I'm not that right. bad. And, you know, we, ha we have all these things because we're so, as a society, we're so uncomfortable yeah, having yeah. those types of talks. And I think that that's something that really is needed that, you know, we need to talk to one another and say, hey, if you see something, some changes in me, please, please tell me, you yeah, know, in, yeah. in, a, in a respectful fashion. And, um, know that it is out of love and concern, um, and uh, and I, well, you, I, you hit on a really good topic. A lot of people, because we think that Alzheimer's and its associated pathologies uh, uh, actually start manifesting themselves way before the friends and loved ones uh, uh, know it, the person themselves often knows that something is wrong, and for years tries to cover it up. Mm -hmm. So you can get a defensive formation very quickly when you, you know, you realize that something's wrong, but you have enough compensatory behavior that for a long time you can fool people. Mm -hmm. Well, when that begins to be, when the disease progresses and you no longer have the ability to uh, fool people, you might still feel just as defensive as always, but you might not be able to hide it just as much. It's one of the most frustrating parts of the uh, disease is that you have to be around people that you trust so much that if you had something that was wrong and you knew it, you could go to them and be honest. So I applaud yep. the efforts that you and other people make in trying to, uh, in trying to, uh, to inform us and give us a conversation that this is actually a community issue. It isn't just a single person issue. Yeah, I, I believe that too. When I go out and speak, I say this is not a disease of one. This is yeah. a societal yeah. issue um, yeah, that exactly. needs to be addressed. And um, you know, then we have the, the flip side where the person with the symptoms is ready to get them addressed. And sometimes the care partner and the family and the friends aren't ready to go there. And, and are in denial as well. Well, you look just fine, you know. <laughs> and, and, and that really, you know, I hear over yeah. and over from them, that is, yeah. that is so degrading and upsets them so much. And then when they actually get um, a diagnosis, they're actually relieved yeah. because yeah, they almost true. feel like true. other people thought they were crazy. Right, like, right. Well, you know, it's funny that it's, it goes both ways. It, you can even see it in the doctor's office. Um, as you know, there's no one test that can definitively detect what Alzheimer's is or isn't. Mm -hmm. So if you visit your doctor's office and you're worried about Alzheimer's, you're going to undergo the same tests that you'd get for any form of dementia. Mm -hmm. And family members that look at that will might look at that and say, well, see, they're not testing for, for Alzheimer's. They're just, you know, doing a standard mental status exam or they're doing a, uh, an evaluation. And so that denial can be pretty strong. You're absolutely right. It can actually go both ways. To, mm -hmm. And it's to the patient's benefit to be as uh, uh, to have as much honesty on both sides of that equation as you can. Yeah, yeah. In my view, yeah. Well, and you know the the whole doctor issue too can um, be a whole nother complication if people aren't getting to the right type of doctor or someone who's been trained in that area. Um, yeah, we we yeah. hear that quite often too. So, sure. you know, know that you have um, the ability to get a second opinion. You have that right. And, right. and push for it, you know, you, you got to follow that gut 
that gut level. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the latest research? And, you know, I know so many people are are feeling so sad that Pfizer now has backed out. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, do you see that being um, impactful in the future um, in terms of, of us finding a cure? Well, I have two reactions, I think. The first is... Uh, uh, pessimistic, and the next one is optimistic. So shall we do pessimism followed by optimism? <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Always take us down to lift us up. <laughs> <laughs> well, the pessimism is that it's really slow going. There's uh, uh, The Pfizer uh, uh, trials are, are, are certainly uh, depressing. The strong sense that we may not be getting all of the diseases. In fact, it looks like we probably shouldn't call it Alzheimer's disease. We mm -hmm. should probably call it Alzheimer's diseases. Mm -hmm. The heritable forms represent, in the minuscule, 5% of all the known cases of Alzheimer's. Uh, uh, Yale researcher Vince Marchese is really good about asking the question, well, if that's the case, what causes the other 95%? And the answer is depressing and comes with my first reaction. We have no idea. And because yeah. we have no idea, we're only in the beginning stages of understanding the genes themselves. There is a huge amount of uh, progress that has not been made. So well, I'll, I'll, I'll start with uh, 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 pessimism, but I don't want to end there, Lori. It's, you know, I never bet against the American scientific community's ability to, to run through a hard problem. We've accomplished so many things in our lifetime. I've been cloning genes out of uh, human tissues virtually since you could. And when I first started as a graduate student in, oh, I don't know, in the early 80s, I never thought in a million years we'd sequence the genome in my lifetime. And now we're doing it routinely as part of a doctor's office. And I can give you perhaps one recent example where there may be some hope even for things like dementias like Alzheimer's disease. Are you familiar with that type 2 diabetes trial that went on in the, at UK and in China? It was a joint venture mm -hmm. published in, in brain research? Yep. Yeah. Well, this is a great example of where there is some optimism. For your listeners who may not be aware of this, there's a, a new drug that was usually used for, was indicated for type 2 diabetes. It's a triple receptor drug composed of growth factors. It's kind of a cocktail of GLP-1, glucagon, and GIP. Uh, those, those are just letters, but they are actually chemicals. And those were given to mice that had uh, uh, what I'd call a rodent form of Alzheimer's disease. And they showed almost immediately that the uh, drug improved their memory and learning skills when you took it. And when you looked biologically to it, you saw that the animals had reduced plaque buildup in the brain, slower rates of uh, neural loss, reduced inflammation. I mean, all the things that you'd suspect if indeed you were really attacking the disease. Now, nobody believes in the research world that the uh, mouse brain and the human brain have anything other than, than short commentary to say to each other. You're eventually going to have to move that to a human trial. But when I read that, I went, you know, there is real reason for optimism, even though it seems bleak right now. If that really turns out to be true, and you can actually look and eventually do human trials on it, this might be one more uh, 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 tool in our toolkit to address this extraordinarily otherwise depressing disorder. So I've, you'd expect me to say this. I've been in the, in the research world for decades. And as we were talking about before we started, I haven't had a boring day in years. But this <laughs> whole idea of the type 2 diabetes drug is one of the reasons why you can just get excited at night in thinking through this stuff. Um, so that is the optimistic side of my double reaction, Laurie, and it's probably the best thing I could tell you when you ask me, what does the latest research tell us about where we are? It says nothing and a ton all at the same time. Mm -hmm. 
Wonderful. Well, it's um, it's exciting though to to hear your perspective of that. That there is still hope because I know so many people feel like they've been pulled down the um, kind of the I don't want to say the rabbit hole per se, but with these yeah. promises of you know that a cure is right around the corner. And I'm right with you. How can we how can we have a cure when we don't know what the cause is? Yeah, well, we actually, it, 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 we don't even know what, where Alzheimer's is currently. It sort of reminds me of, you know, 200 years ago when you had the sniffles. Mm-hmm. When you had the sniffles 200 years ago, you'd line people up against the wall and you'd say, you have the sniffles. So <laughs> what you would do is you would bleed them, right? You know, open mm-hmm. up their veins and get rid of the bad stuff. The one good thing that science is good at, science actually isn't all that good at cures, but it is unbelievable at characterization. So what happens when science comes along and addresses the sniffles, it looks at one person and says, oh, you've got the sniffles because you have a cold, you have a viral infection. Another person, you have the sniffles because you have hay fever. Another person, you have the sniffles because you have a sinus infection. And another person says, you have, a, you have bacterial pneumonia. Science, by categorizing each of those things, which we had considered to be one thing, sniffles, produces enough insight that eventually cures can be derived. You don't treat bacterial pneumonia the same way you treat fever. But you don't know that insight until you know that one sniffle is is a pneumonia and the other sniffle is is a hay fever. Mm -hmm. Right now, Lori, that's kind of where we are with Alzheimer's. It looks very similar in different ways. But we're only just beginning to understand that certain types of dementias are not the same as others. And the more we categorize and understand them, it will be just like how we tackled sniffles. And in the future, we'll be able to create, uh, I think, uh, curing protocols, or at least treatment protocols, based on the categorization that we find. Right now, we're still in the categorization stage. Okay. Okay. That makes that makes a ton of sense. That makes a ton yeah. of sense. And I, I kind of wish that more people would talk in that realm because it makes it makes sense and and it's still hopeful, you know. Yeah. It's it's still hopeful. It doesn't have to be the golden ring, you know. If we're if we're not that close, let's be let's be honest about that too. I think is is really important. Now, yeah. what are your thoughts about early, you know, people getting in for early detection and yeah. you know trying to slow down or prevent the process? Are are you a believer of early detection? Only from a research perspective. We don't know if you detected something early enough that was an Alzheimer's, a pre-Alzheimer's condition, that you could devise treatments that would uh, address the disorder in a way that you couldn't if you were, say, 70 and, and then first got the diagnosis. I do believe that that's probably where some of the gold is going to be. You know, as we were discussing, there's really strong evidence that the disease actually begins 10, 15. Uh, there are some researchers who believe it's 25 years before you actually display the symptoms. And if that's the case, that will be a form of, of Alzheimer's that will be like one of those sniffles. It will be the, we are already talking about early onset versus late onset. Um, and right now, where the research is, is to try and to detect if there is something early to worry about. Are you familiar with Pittsburgh Compound B? Have you ever heard that term before? That one I'm not. Okay. It, well, there's an, it's an antibody uh, that's created in a laboratory called PIB, PIB, which is short for Pittsburgh Compound B. Um, if you inject it into a person, this antibody will act like a hunting dog that's trained to find any amyloid plaques that might exist in the brain and will go to those plaques and bind to them. If you put a radio, radio tracer on that uh, PIB antibody, 
uh, before you inject it, and then you inject it, you can actually see if it binds to a person's brain and then detect if they have a, an amyloid plaque that's, a, a, that's starting to build up. And you can do that if, if the guy is 14 or 40. If they don't have anything, then fine. But if they do, we will begin to understand that there are some types of Alzheimer's that may, you know, that may be a, uh, starting to build up in the 20s. So that's a, that's a, it's a research question, which is why I answer your question that way. Uh, um, there's another one, too, of course. There's the genetic identity. You are undoubtedly familiar with APOE4, I would assume. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, it's a risk factor gene because it increases a person's risk of developing the disease for sure. However, you can inherit an APOE4 allele and not get the disease either. So it's not as good as an early detector as, say, maybe the plaque detection. But if, I, if that sounds a little ambiguous, and, I am, and it sounds like I am hedging the question rather than saying, yeah, we're going to get this disease, I'm going to say, yeah, we have a, a, a technology that might be able to tell us if you've got it earlier than before. Um, if that sounds a little pessimistic, then, or at least not uh, an aha, then I'm communicating correctly. We don't know if we, if we diagnosed it early enough that you could actually, that that would actually be a benefit to the patient. Mm-hmm. Well, I know a lot of uh, people come up to me and say, are you going to get tested to see if you have the gene? And, and you know, I say no, um, yeah. because I don't think our genes are necessarily our, our destiny. I'm kind of one of those believers that, that think we probably all have the cancer gene in us, and is it going to mutate or not is an unknown. <laughs> You know, that, that's kind of how I look at it, right, wrong, or the other, sure. otherwise, that's just kind of where I'm at. Um, well, one thing you can say about the probability of acquiring a dementia like Alzheimer's, the more stress you have in your life growing up, the more you are at risk for that disorder. If mm-hmm. you start to get low-level systemic inflammation as a result of being hyper-stressed all the time, uh, um, you know, you, that needle begins to move in the direction of getting a certain types of dementia as you get older. So if you can reduce the amount of stress, you know, if you, don't, if you really don't want to know if you have a ticking time bomb in your brain or not, that's fine. Because even if you found out, the only thing you could say is, well, you now have a ticking time bomb. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. I can't think of anything more stressful, Lori. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. And thus, perhaps getting a self-fulfilling prophecy that that stress alone itself begins part of the risk factor for you acquiring the very thing you're afraid of. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I've, I've heard a lot of doctors say that they wouldn't get the test either because there's yeah. nothing that can be done. And, you know, I mean, what, you know, the saying out there is what's good for the heart is good for the brain you know, in terms of what we eat and how we exercise and in sleep and all of those types of things and, and reducing stress. And, you know, I know those things. I'm still not doing them all as as good as I should. (laughs) Oh, my favorite thing in the world to eat is, is pizza and a bratwurst. (laughs) (laughs) That's about as bad as as I can think of for for a whole range of cognitive functions. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's just, you know, one of those things, you got to still live life, and people take pleasure in, in different ways, you know. Sure, sure. Um, now, well, one of know, the, oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, to the point of lifestyle changes, though, that's actually a fairly, uh, 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 if there was any part of the research world that actually uh, uh, is productive for dementias like Alzheimer's disease, you can reduce your probability of acquiring the disease by acquiring also certain uh, lifestyle choices. Uh, we know, for example, are you familiar with the concept of cognitive reserve or brain reserve? Are you familiar with that term? Uh-huh. Yeah, but, okay, our, yeah. but our audience might not be, so. 
for sure. Well, the cognitive reserve comes from the, uh, 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 the definition uh, concept brain reserve. Brain reserve is composed of two parts. It has to do with overall brain size and a census of how many neurons are available for work. That's called mm -hmm. brain reserve. Cognitive reserve comes from that, which is the ability to uh, 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 be resilient in the face of trauma. So if a certain type of dementia comes on you, if you have a strong cognitive reserve, it's not as likely to hit you as early or as severely. So the big question from a research perspective is, if we go down the lifestyle uh, a rabbit trail is, how do you build up cognitive reserve? Because if you can build up cognitive reserve, you can buffer against the effects or at least the probability of acquiring some dementias like Alzheimer's. And there, Lori, we have all kinds of good things to say. So should we list a couple of those perhaps? Please, please do. One of the first is probably the most delightful. Have lots of friends and interact with them regularly. <laughs> yep, good one. That builds yep. up cognitive reserve. It totally does. Uh, in fact, this was done not too far from you uh, over, over in Illinois. If you can have lots of friends and interact with them regularly, you can actually watch that low-level systemic inflammation that, are, that can occur when you're stressed, or maybe even in the beginning stages of dementia, you can watch all of that, you can watch that inflammation go down. So having lots of friends and being uh, faithful in, in regularly seeing them is a big deal. Here's another one. Become extraordinarily aggressive in learning something. If you say, let's say you had a degree in poetry, you would do a prefrontal cognitive assault. The best thing you could do would be go back to school and get a degree in biochemistry, something completely far afield from what you're used to. If you have a degree in biochemistry, one of the best things you could do would go and get a degree in English literature. Anything that was outside your experience that produced enough, I'm gonna use the word uncomfortability, but not unpleasantly so, just that it's, you know, you're going to have to work for it. Mm -hmm. That also improves cognitive reserve. Here's another one. Start teaching other people, especially uh, uh, those types of those people who have, I was going to say age ranges, but it's, it could be anybody who have a different point of view than you do. Teach them. You know, there's nothing like a 65 year old teaching a 15 year old something. Mm -hmm. A 15-year-old has a very different point of view and a very different set of experiences. But the research shows, it's very clear, uh, uh, people that are older and are entering uh, near retirement age have a tremendous amount of experience that they can teach younger people, particularly people outside their experience. And that's actually been shown to, to work. Here's yet another one. Read 3.5 hours per week or longer. Get yourself into a book and be reading it. Be reading it on a regular basis. You are 17% less likely to die by a certain age with what we call all-cause mortality. If you just read, a, you read for a while, if you read more than 3.5 hours a day, that number goes up to 23% less likely to die by a certain age. Wow. You can even, shall I go on? I don't mean to. Yeah, no, these are fascinating. I think these yeah. are great. Here's another one. Go get some musical exposure. And by that, I mean learn to play an instrument. If you've, and it's got to be something you've not played before. Uh, in, in one experiment, uh, uh, they taught a group of people who had never played the piano uh, before, uh, a group of elderly uh, populations, uh, uh, to play the piano. They taught them theory, and they taught them to sight read. That improved their executive function, made them less depressed, and guess what? Improved their cognitive reserve. So I regularly encourage people, do you see how this is a cognitive assault, isn't it? 
I mean, mm -hmm. if you're going to learn a biochemistry if you were a poet. And if you've never played the piano, by God, get your butt on the, on the piano bench and get started on it. Um, maybe one more we can talk specifically, okay. and that is a very particular type of exercise, aerobic exercise, but one of the best parts of it would be to go and learn how to dance. If you don't know how to dance, and it would be ballroom dancing as opposed to just sitting there and wiggling in front of somebody. <laughs> <laughs> if you do that, which has also been shown in randomized blinded trials, posture and balance improves 25%. You reduce the number of falls by 37%. Uh, uh, effect sizes, those are measures of correlation, are almost seven times greater with exercisers than couch potatoes, but particularly with dance. Dance did three, we call it the trifecta. It did and does three things experimentally. Number one, you have to socialize. So it forces you to interact with somebody. If you've been sitting there all by yourself and alone and you're not doing any of that relational stuff we were talking about, dancing will force that. Number two, it's ritualized movement that requires balance. So there's a form of exercise. Aerobic exercise is probably the best for improving executive function in the brain, but any type of movement will go. Number three to me is the, is the most important and something of a heartbreaker, Lori. Um, when you get older, when I was uh, uh, busy writing the book Brain Rules for Aging Well, I would go out and visit in assisted living facilities in lots of places, in addition to the normal research cohorts that we have at the, at the medical school. And I would ask people that were like in their 80s um, what it was like to be 80 years old. And many of them would say of the, of the bad thing, there were good things about being 80, but here's a bad one, that they increasingly became invisible to people. Yeah. People quit, you know, they would look past them. And one of the things they wouldn't do is that they would no longer get any non-exploitive touching, skin on skin, just, mm -hmm. you know, just a, a hug or a pat on the back, uh, a, a handshake, anything. There was no skin on skin contact. And what the dancing was able to show is that not only are you uh, forced socialization and ritualized movement, you're also touching somebody. Mm -hmm. And human touch has been shown in the laboratory in elderly populations to do tremendous numbers of things. So maybe my last piece of advice from a lifestyle perspective, after you go get your degree in biochemistry, after having joined a book club, after having played the piano, is get out there and do the foxtrot. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I love, uh, you know, I love those things that you just uh, shared with us because I, I, I see, um, you know, people that I work with that have dementia, uh, yeah. how much more engaged they are. And they, they talk about, you know, when you said about teaching others and being social, you know, right. so many of my advocates on dementia chats are, are very, very involved. I mean, they are 24-7 almost um, on, you know, advocating for somebody and they're in one group or another group. And yeah. they talk about living with purpose now, um, yeah. where yeah. they didn't have that before. They said it's, sure. a, whole, it's a whole different level and that they can feel the difference in that. And so their goal is to try to get others involved um, at that level. In fact, they've created a group called, I don't know if you're familiar with it, called Dementia Mentors. And uh, no, it's, it's, it's really cool. It's for someone who is newly diagnosed, they can go to yeah. DementiaMentors.org and ask for a mentor, and that mentor has dementia. So they uh -huh. know what it looks like, what it feels like. Um, and uh, can get them socially connected. And sure. 
and it's, it's pretty, pretty, pretty neat. Now, um, in your book, you kind of break some things down into the social brain, the thinking brain, the body yep. brain, and, and the future brain. Can you talk about those, those areas and how they differ? Sure. Well, let's talk about the future brain for a second okay. uh, and discuss what I think might be one of the most counterintuitive uh, components of what I'll call learning to age gracefully, or better to say, buffering up against the effects of, uh, uh, of acquiring dementia and also improving cognitive reserve. This has to do with a very strange thing that is going to sound like a contradiction, Laurie, so get ready, okay? Okay. I'm buckled <laughs> Here up. Here is the contradiction. I just said that you need to get out there and become very aggressive in your learning, that you need to be teaching, that you need to be uh, music, having music lessons, that you need to be out there dancing. All of that's true. All of that's in the forward direction. Mm -hmm. No question about it. But the future brain also has another side to the equation. In fact, I'm not sure. Do you remember the old radio host, Paul Harvey? Oh, sure. <laughs> well, Paul Harvey used to say, but now for the rest of the story, if you recall. Yeah. There's a whole other rest of the story. And it has to do with something that we call retrieval bias and is particularly about uh, uh, exploring the answer to this question. Why is it, and it's true, if you ask an 80-year-old to begin recalling the events of, their, of things that have happened to them when they were younger and when they were older and then all the way up to now, just you know, do a gross domestic product over every, all of your experience, what do they remember the most? What they remember, and at what age is it remembered? The fascinating part of this, it's a kind of a double humped curve, sort of like a, a dromedary camel. Mm -hmm. um, 80-year-olds remember most clearly and most accurately the things that happened to them between the ages of 15 and 29. No kidding. Okay. At, it begins to decline around 30 or 40, and it doesn't pick up again, so that's the first, the first hump is the is the 15 to 29, that's why it's retrieval bias. You have a bias towards retrieving certain events that occurred at certain ages. You don't get the, uh, the second hump to begin occurring until you get to be in your 60s or 70s. And that's something we call the recency effect because, you know, it happened to you early, uh, late enough that you can still remember parts of it. So researchers ask the question, what's up between 15 and 29? It's, it's even being given its own name. It's called the reminiscence bump. Um, we think we know but the going down that rabbit trail, and this is now going to be the work of Harvard's Ellen Langer. I'm not sure if you've had Ellen on your show before. But no, if you I have a chance, Oh, my goodness. If you have a chance to get her and ask her specifically about her very famous counterclockwise experiment. Okay. Do I have a minute to tell you briefly what, what the counterclockwise please. experiment yep, was? Please. Okay. The counterclockwise experiment was originally done with a, with a group of men asking the question, what, happened, what would happen if you produced in their environment 1959? Now, this is going to be for men in their 80s, okay? So okay. we're going to ask the question, what would happen if you reproduced the environment of 1959? So what Ellen did is that she went and found a monastery that's uh, a few miles west of, of Boston and asked the question, could I, would you allow me to, and this is a monastery that could be rented now, could you, would you allow me to turn it into 1959? There'd be, if there was television shows, it would be television shows with Dwight Eisenhower as president. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it would be, if the sports were going to be on those shows, it would be the Minneapolis Lakers. Okay. Did you know that the Lakers used to be in your neck of the woods? <laughs> I did not. I just yep, figured they, they'd all be celebrating my birthday because I was born in 59. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, this is, 
is the Minneapolis Lakers are now the Los Angeles Lakers. But in 1959, they were in your neck of the woods. The, uh, and uh, John, uh, Johnny Unitas and the Baltimore Colts, not way before Indianapolis. Um, they, uh, she turned it into 1959. When the, when the seniors got on the bus, they heard music from 1959. And when they got there, even they were not allowed to bring mirrors, and they could only bring pictures of themselves within the what I'll just call the retrieval bias bubble. The postdocs and graduate students and staff that were there to greet these old men as they came in were to treat them as if they were younger. Even if they couldn't lug their suitcases up the stairs to go to their room, they were required to lift the shirt out of the suitcase and carry it up to the room one shirt at a time. For a whole week, she did this. Before she left, before she had them go, she measured uh, uh, their, uh, a whole range of motor skills and cognitive functions and whatnot, because this is going to be a pre-post experiment. But she wanted to know what would happen if you transformed them for five days right inside the reminiscence bump. And what she found was nothing short of a miracle. It's amazing, Lori. Hearing sensitivity improved, uh, particularly threshold intensities at 1,000 hertz and 6,000 hertz. Near point vision improved, especially in the right eye. Their manual dexterity improved. In fact, the participants' finger length actually grew. No kidding. We think um, it's because they were stretching things out. Maybe they're playing the piano, chess, doing things they haven't done in a while. Um, their memory and processing speed all improved. This is measured by something we call the digital symbol assay. Uh, the controls were actually showing a decline. Whole body dexterity scores improved. One guy even threw his cane away. And at the very end, this was reported in the New York Times, and I have a quote from it. The guy's name is Brian Grierson, uh, if you, if you want to get a hold of this counterclockwise experiment. Here's what Brian said at the end of the experiment. He's talking about Ellen, Ellen Langer. Uh-huh. Quote, though she and her students would write up the experiment, they left out a lot of the tantalizing color, like the spontaneous touch football game that erupted between heretofore creaky seniors as they waited for the bus to go back to Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> we now know that if you regularly expose yourself to nostalgic experiences, particularly because you've got a retrieval bias anywhere, when you, when you routinely visit how you used to live, your social connectedness scores go up, what are called eudaimonic well-being scores grow up, that's a sense of fulfillment, um, your death-related anxiety decreases, you become less afraid of, of dying, your intimacy scores go up, you begin feeling emotionally closer to loved ones, and here's the most interesting one, you begin to have a greater tolerance of outsiders, especially ones with perceived social differences. No kidding. Wow. So you can see that by going, I, I, like I say at all times, you should be going backward, uh, forwards for sure. And I totally believe in that if you're a poet, become a biochemist thing. But now we know that for Paul Harvey's great quote about the rest of the story, you also need to go backwards. So I recommend that people, particularly if they're in the beginning stages of dementia, so powerful is this, this is now becoming, it's being labeled memory therapy, that you create a room that is filled with everything that happened to you between the ages of 15 and 29. Fill it with the music of that period. Fill it with the food you used to eat, the smells. Fill it with posters that used to hang on your wall. Fill it with books that you read when you were, when you were that age. Fill it with movies that you saw when you were that age all in an attempt to capture the great stuff that Ellen Langer first saw in her counterclockwise experiment. Wow. No kidding. That is very, very fascinating. 
Very fascinating. I will have to reach out to her and, and uh, see if I can track her down and, and invite her <laughs> on the show. Yeah, I'm not sure she's given interviews anymore. She was the first um, a woman in the psychology department at Harvard to be granted tenure. So she actually is, is of some stature, uh, okay. uh, just in the history of, of Harvard itself. Okay. There's been some confirmatory experiments that have, that have gone on. There is a, um, in fact, if you can handle another New York Times headline, this is the headline, Reliving, Reliving Communist Past Helps East German Dementia Patients. So this is not only good for typically aging people, it's good for dementia patients. What they did is that they, the professionals created an East German living area in, a, in a, an assisted living facility that quoted the physical environment of Dresden in the mid-1960s back when it was communist East Germany. And in there, and they did the full tilt, they reproduced, they replicated Ellen's experiment, now asking for uh, the progress of dementia. So they gave them food, which was Hungarian salad of the 1960s. They had a kitchen with dishes from the original 1960s, East German metal sink, no kidding. They, they found some old East German laundry detergents. One's called Spee, the other one's called Fewa. And they washed their clothes in those old laundry detergents. So the guys could, and the, women, the men and women uh, who were in the experiment, in the facility, could get the smells. And they found the same kinds of things that, in fact, you were boosting cognition, probably doing something with that cognitive reserve, but certainly boosting acute scores simply by having people relive parts of their past. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. Um, can we can we touch on the other portions to the, the social, the thinking, and the, the body in well, the sure. brain? Uh -huh. and, okay. Let's do the social part first, okay? Okay. And then we can go to body, so maybe we can do diet after that, maybe? Okay. And uh, then was there another one that you wanted to um, Thinking. On? Oh, the thinking part, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. All right, let's, if we do the social part, we've already talked a little bit about socialized, social skills, but let's yeah. do another one. There is a memory uh, ability that naturally declines with age. It's called episodic memory. Now, to understand episodic memory, we need to know a little bit about how memory works in the brain. A lot of people will say a memory is like a hard drive in a, in a, in a, in a computer. And if that's the case, Laurie, I want you to run from them, okay? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's not how the memory works. In fact, even saying how memory works is the wrong question. Because there are probably <coughs> excuse me, 20 to 30 separate memory gadgets in the brain. They all work in a semi-independent fashion. They consult with each other occasionally, and most of them are in charge of different domains of learning. For example, your ability to know how to ride a bicycle recruits a different suite of neural circuits than the ones that uh, uh, had you remember that the Lakers are now in Los Angeles rather than in Minneapolis. Those are different memory systems, and there are different nerves that get it. Well, episodic memory is like that. That's a very particular type of memory for episodes. Episodes that usually involves a time stamp, so something is moving through time. It usually involves players like protagonists. If you think of Gilligan's Island episodes, okay, that's a, that's a, you're going to use episodic memory to get at it. Okay. Episodic memory naturally declines with age. Uh, in fact, dr fairly dramatically declines. And the question has been asked by a group of researchers, is there any way to arrest it? And the answer is, yep, it's that social brain again. But in this particular case, in something very, very interesting. This is what you have to do. You can change episodic memory decline. In fact, you can halt it. In fact, you can not only can halt it, you can make it go in the other direction. 
by routinely getting into arguments with people who do not agree with you as long as you remain friends with them. No kidding. Mm. If you can routinely get into uh, arguments, and I mean arguments, I don't mean just exposure. I mean, you, you're out there clashing with your values or whatever it is that's there, but you can remain friends you can increase your episodic memory scores by, in some cases, 50, 60. There was one uh, a result that showed an increase by 600%. Um, this is a little bit like, um, are you familiar with the fact that the, uh, the late Justice Antonin Scalia and the current Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, they're on opposite ends of the Supreme Court. Remember, Scalia mm -hmm. was, a, was a conservative. Yep. And Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was very much a liberal. You know, they loved each other. <laughs> they would go to operas together. They were their spouses were good friends. They were they had such a love fest, even though they were at complete disagreements, that somebody actually wrote a play about it. <laughs> I'm not making this up. And they actually went RGB. That's Ruth Bader Ginsburg and uh, uh, um, and Antonin Scalia actually went there so that they could uh, be with each other. This they got into arguments. They got into arguments professionally, certainly. They got into arguments all the time, yet they were close, clear friends. And if you can do that on a regular basis with people, you can increase your memory score. So there's another social interaction. So, social. Interesting. Yeah. Shall we do diet? Yes, please. All right. This is bad news for people who like bratwurst and pizza like me. <laughs> <laughs> and all this, just put it there. I'm an Air Force brat, so I was at K.I. Sawyer Air Base back when it, was, when it was an air base in Marquette, Michigan. And I fell in love with uh, pasties, I think they were called. It's a Finnish. It's, it's, yep. it's, it's sort of like a, 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 a pastry that was filled with all kinds of del delicious and tasty meat. I can't have that either. Um, <laughs> I used to be, as a scientist, really skeptical about applying anything in the nutrition research onto uh, cognitive change of any kind. Uh, not that I don't think nutrition is important. I actually think it's really important. But we, it's so complicated. Foods are so complicated. And metabolic machinery is so individual and so complicated. And so little money is thrown at nutrition research that I have a fair amount of skepticism about saying anything like, eat this and your memory improves. I had to change all that about mm, five, seven years ago. Was published, I think, first in the New England Journal of Medicine and then somewhere else, uh, a study on how to do nutrition research that isolated the great power of the Mediterranean diet. I'm sure you've heard of this. The mm -hmm. Mediterranean oh, yeah. diet. It was the first to show that if you eat regularly the Mediterranean diet, you will get improvements in general memory, frontal cognition, more global forms of cognition, including processing speed, and here's the biggie, working memory, something that used to be called short-term memory. Now, the Mediterranean diet is essentially a truck full of fruits and vegetables. <laughs> There's not a bratwurst in sight. <laughs> and if you eat meat, it's going to be chicken or white fish, and if you've got to have grease, it's going to be olive oil, nuts, berries, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. The stuff that's actually eaten around the southern Mediterranean is the reason why it's called the Mediterranean diet. But staying on a diet like that produces powerful changes in cognition. And that's the first time I've ever seen it done in a responsible enough fashion that I can say, you know, I'm going to have to surrender this deep, dark nutrition prejudice of mine and, and say, darn it, there is something you can say. 
So in addition, uh, uh, Laurie, to creating a room that would, uh, um, for you, your reminiscence buff would probably be 1979. So recreate the world of 1979. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're going to have a lot of Bee Gees in there. Sorry. <laughs> 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 and uh, probably the uh, Iran with the hostage situation and Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, all of that stuff in there. Every time you eat some food, make sure that it's a lot of fruits and vegetables and white meat chicken and white white meat fish. Yeah. So that's okay. diet. Okay. Finally, thinking. Let's move it over to, uh, and I can close with this, uh, the idea of sleep. Sleep is related, to, I'd say, the loss of thinking. But you, if you don't sleep very well, you don't think very well, as anybody who's ever had only two or three hours of sleep can will attest, and that's probably all of us. Uh, we now know that if you don't sleep enough within, within a certain requirement, uh, you not only are at greater risk for being drowsy during the day and not thinking well, you're at greater risk for dementia. Mm-hmm. So the question you can ask is, is there anything that can aid and abet the sleeping process? You know, is there anything that you could say, okay, this is going to allow me to sleep better? Um, there are some normal tricks that you can try, and there's big books that are written about them, and some of them by responsible research scientists. But the literature is really, really clear. One of the best ways to learn how to sleep better, and with older, particularly in elderly populations, this is really important because they're going to have more trouble as you get older. You just do in going into what we call slow wave sleep, the sleep you really need in order to, uh, to stay functional. There is a way to get there. It is by practicing, and this is why I'm putting it in the thinking part, practicing the practice of mindfulness. You have heard of mindfulness, I assume? Oh, yeah. I'm big into yeah. mindfulness, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan, too. As long as you do the John Kabat-Zinn variety of mindfulness. There's a lot of mindfulness out there that I'm just going to say is folktale and anecdote. And you have to be careful with it. In fact, there's a, there's a book out there called Mindfulness for Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to happen. You have to follow the John Kabat-Zinn. Uh, and in fact, there's a, a book you can get on Amazon. It's an eight-week course that is essentially the research instrument. But if you utilize that protocol, that protocol of mindfulness, you have market reductions in depression and anxiety, you have lowered uh, cortisol levels, you quit ruminating as frequently over the negative things. That's what keeps so many people up is they just over and over again think of the things that bug them. Uh, 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 if you practice mindfulness on a regular basis, uh, 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 mindfulness seniors are 86% more likely to score in what I'll just say is the very positive range for markers of cardiovascular health than those who aren't practicing it. And that directly relieves leads to a reduction in dementia. No kidding. Mm-hmm. So the more mindfulness you can practice, the more sleep you're going to get. And the more sleep you're going to get, the more you can buffer against the negative effects. So there you go. Social, get into arguments with friends. Diet, get a bunch of olive oil and white meat and lots of vegetables. And for thinking, practice as much mindfulness as you can. Wonderful. You also have 10 great rules for aging well in your book, which I won't give out. We want people to go buy this book. It's just, it's, it's, uh, it's just filled with, with great information and is a, is a real easy read um, for, for anybody. And uh, I, I so appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. It's just, uh, this hour has, has flown by and uh, I, I appreciate all of your, all of your work and um, being able to share it with people. So well, if Lori, you, I very much appreciate the invitation to come and speak to you. 
Great. Now, um, if people want to get your book, they can just go to brainrules.net. And, oh. and there you have um, available all of your kind of brain rules uh, series of books that they can sure. that they can go ahead and purchase. And, and from you can the, also get them at Barnes and Noble. They're all at Barnes and Noble, and they're all on Amazon too. All, all, all. There are three books in the Brain Rules series: Brain, Brain Rules for Babies, Brain Rules, and then Brain Rules for Aging Well. So I try and cover the whole <laughs> the whole lifespan gamut. But they're all available on Amazon, and they're actually all available in Barnes and Noble. Okay, wonderful. Well, I, um, again, can't thank you enough, and I wish you just a prosperous and uh, healthy 2018. Thank you, Lori. You the same there, and, and good luck with your many adventures. Okay, thank you. Well, hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families, too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.